You're listening to the Northside Christian Church Podcast. Find out more about Northside by visiting us online at northsideweb.org. That is just a small sample of Compassion 2019 that we have just completed. Over 28 different projects, over 200 people involved in those projects. I believe we made a splash for Jesus Christ, not only in Medina County, but all the way to the homeless in Cleveland. If you were a part in any way putting together uh, gift bags, I had the privilege of taking, I don't know, probably 40 or 50 gift bags into the office at Medina High School for the cafeteria workers and for the custodians, gift bags, and the receptionist looked at me and said, wow, this never happens. They're going to love this. We'll, we'll pass them out to them immediately. That's just one. I could go on and on. But how many of you had a part in Compassion 2019? Raise your hand. Let's give these folks a hand. Let's come on. Awesome. I believe compassion and service have been the heartbeat of Northside but it is continuing to grow and ramp up with energy and um, excitement as we get bigger and bigger into it. And we've just started. Next one on the list coming up is Homeroom Hope, where we'll reach out to children within the county and give them book bags, and you know how we do that. Those collections are coming up pretty soon. Uh, so get involved. Get out of the seats, as you hear me say, and onto the playing field uh, to really make a difference for Christ with your life. Remember back all the way to 1989, Brenna and I took our two toddlers, Bree and Brent, to Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio for the circus. It was amazing. We walked in, and when you walk into a circus, you immediately smell stale popcorn, right? So you know you're in the right place. The kids got their faces painted. Excitement. We went into the arena. We found our seat. We had a fantastic seat. And then it started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest show on earth. How many have been to the circus? Uh, get excited about it. Yeah, you know, the circus is a blast, all right? Circus is fun. When I think of the circus and the times that we have gone, I remember, you know, the tigers, you know, make a sound of a tiger for me to wake you up here. Well, that's a cat. That's a kitty cat. Make a sound of a tiger. Come on. There you are. Elephants. Make a sound of an elephant. Hey, man, you like that one better. But I remember the balloon vendors in the stands, the cotton candy, the hot dogs. I don't know why, but a lot about the circus. I might remember the food, all right? But love the circus. And since we're having a conversation about the circus, and we're going to talk about it over the next few weeks, let me ask you this. Would anybody ever describe or would you describe your life as a circus? Well, you say, Jeff, you know, when I look at my life, people would buy tickets to see it. That's how much of a circus it is. In fact, my family is a circus. Maybe you have a ringmaster in your family. 
Maybe you have a tightrope rocker at you. Maybe you have a juggler. The family is a circus. Let me ask you another question. If the walls of your house could speak, what story would they tell? If the walls of your house could speak right now, what story would they tell? It's a popular way of telling stories where you tell the dramatic conclusion first and then you tell everything that led up to that. I see it in the movies all the time. They show you a dramatic conclusion. And you're like, man, what is that about? And they show you everything led up to it. So, oh, now I understand. Now I get it. That's how it happened. I want to talk to you about the Davison family circus. The Davison ha- uh, household, the picture of a household, you never would have painted it uh, to become that way. It's a blended family. That's not unusual. Blended families are those families that were separated, and then they come together and they blend together smoothly. Well, the Davison family is still waiting to blend. It's not even close. We're going to look at a dramatic ending, and we're going to see what led up to that happening with the Davisons. If you have your Bible or Bible app, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel chapter 13. When I say the Davisons, we're going to look at the life of David this morning. When you think of David, understand he had one of the most dysfunctional families in all of Scripture. When you think of David, you probably think of him as a king or a giant killer. We're going to look at him more as a husband and a father this morning. By the time we catch up to David, he is a grandfather. He's married to quite a few different women. One wife... He hasn't slept with in decades. Another wife he's married to worships the ground that he walks on. It's kind of a dysfunctional relationship, right? Yeah, that's a joke. Stay with me. There's a lot of little jokes here. If you miss them, I'm going to let you know it. All right? Another wife he had an affair with, but he had her husband killed to cover up the pregnancy. So it's not surprising, David's family is a circus. His kids, stepbrothers, stepsisters, they're all not getting along too well. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, there are two of his children we read about, Amnon and Tamar. They are half-brother, half-sister. The Bible tells us that Tamar is beautiful. She's gorgeous. Amnon is kind of infatuated with his own half-sister. I'm not going to go into that whole story, but a tragic event occurs. Again, it's one of those, how did that happen kind of things. The tragedy that occurs is Amnon rapes his half-sister. And it all takes place right under David's nose. And he does nothing about it. He hears about it, but all we read about David's response is in verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. He didn't do anything about it, but he was mad. David is one of those fathers who's very driven at work, but very passive at home. 
And one of the things I've learned about blended families in particular is there is a huge temptation to let things slide, especially with the kids. For number one, you don't want to feel like you are treating your children better than the stepchildren. You don't want to feel like the stepchildren are getting by with things your kids don't. The temptation is to think, oh, my ex-wife will deal with that you know, during the week, or my ex-husband will have that tough conversation next weekend, and we continue to put things off, put things off, or deal with things passively, and it almost always ends up in a disaster because we don't handle things. David does nothing. Then another person we read about in the story is Absalom. Tracking with me? We've got Amnon over here, Tamar. Now, Absalom is Tamar's full brother. He hears about what's happened. He knows his dad's not going to do anything about it. So Absalom takes matters into his own hands. In verse 28, it says, he has his half-brother Amnon murdered. Again, you read the story and think, man, that was kind of like abrasive, right? How did that happen? And the temptation there is to think, this is just another horrible day in David's family, in his family circus. However, there's got to be something that led up to it all. You're in 2 Samuel chapter 13. What I want us to do is go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. All the way back. It means you're going to go past David's affair with Bathsheba, past Bathsheba, which I'm sure Amnon and Absalom knew about. And maybe that's why David was so passive, because of his past, he didn't feel like he, didn't feel like he had the moral authority to deal with it. Maybe. Past David and Bathsheba, go past his relationship with Abigail, which was dysfunctional. Go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 6 in his first marriage to Michael. Michael. And we see an argument unfold between Michael and David. Their marriage, those of you who like romantic movies, it could be one. Had a romantic beginning. King Saul offered to anyone who would kill Goliath exemption from taxes all the days of their life and his daughter Michael in marriage. Those two things. Now Michael hears about this and to him it's not romantic. He's thinking, you know, Michael doesn't sound like a girl's name, right? So David expresses his concern to the king. He says, King Saul, 1 Samuel 17, 7, he says, King, the freedom from taxes all the days of my life is awesome. But can I please see a picture of Michael? Some of you got it. It's not in there. Don't look. All right? Don't look. It makes you wonder. He's not seen her. He's going to step before this giant Goliath. Man, I wonder what Michael, I wonder what she really looks like. That's worth this, you know? Well, he kills Goliath. Moment of victory. Comes home a hero. Does marry Michael. Very romantic. Chapter 6, he's king. The ark of the Lord is brought into the city. Great victory, great day for David as king. He even, remember, takes his robe off, dances in the street before the Lord, basically in his boxer shorts. Michael doesn't like it. 
Michael is embarrassed by all of it. In fact, when he comes home, it breaks loose. Verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Right? Dancing, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls, his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. You know, welcome home, right? Michael attacks him, is critical immediately, jealous, of course. Verse 21, David goes back. David says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else in his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord. He's right to justify himself, but notice how he immediately rears back and is on the defensive. He goes on the attack. They have an argument. They go back and forth. Here's how the argument ends. Verse 23. Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's the Bible's way of saying they didn't sleep together anymore. And if you search all through Scripture, you will never read about Michael again. For all practical purposes, that's the end of David's first marriage. So we get just a glimpse into David's family circus. And here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if what happened in chapter 6 doesn't tell us about chapter 13. Follow me? I'm wondering if what happens between David and Michael doesn't lead us down the path to what happens with Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. You see, we have a tendency to think a family falls apart the moment everything goes wrong. But you can almost always trace it back to a cycle. It started somewhere. And perhaps what we read about in chapter 6 leads us down the road to the tragedies of chapter 13. A family usually doesn't fall apart in one day. Picture it like this. When we get married, we ask our spouse to carry a burden. Everybody does, maybe big, maybe small, but everybody asks their spouse to carry a burden. They'll say this rock is that burden. This is the burden you ask your spouse to carry when you get married. Maybe negativity, your negativity, maybe your critical spirit, maybe your moodiness, maybe something like alcoholism or some addiction. I don't know what it is. It can be a million different things, but we ask our spouse to carry this burden. They look at it in the beginning and look at it and think, well, that's not that bad. I can handle that. I'll carry that for you. And as years go on, it gets heavier and heavier and heavier to carry. 
and as it continues to grow, and it continues to never change, eventually, they want to carry it. Their mental side, their mind says, keep carrying it, keep carrying it. But their physical ability to carry that gives way. And the rock drops. And when the rock drops, it usually goes into hundreds of pieces. And sometimes it can never be put back together again. The tragedy didn't happen when the rock dropped. The tragedy happened through the months, maybe years, of it getting heavier and heavier and heavier. There's something that led up to the rock dropping. Now, in our story, we looked at what happened. We looked where things went wrong. We looked at where it came from. Here's what I want us to do. I want us to camp out for a moment in 2 Samuel chapter 6. and Remember the story that I went through. I want to give some practical lessons about the rocks we carry in our family. Number one, lesson number one. When conflict arises, identify the heart of the issue. When conflict arises, identify the heart of the issue. Like Michael, we sometimes go on the attack immediately. Just like David did the same thing. He comes home, immediately he goes on the defensive and attacks right back. And no one takes time to identify the rock. you got to ask yourself, what is the issue really? What is really at the heart of the issue? Is the issue that my husband's come home late again? Or is the issue really that he's not dependable and he never lets me know where he is? Is the issue that my wife asked me to take out the trash again? Or is the issue that I feel like she doesn't trust me or maybe it's rejection from the night before? What is the issue Really, why do I feel this way? Why do they feel this way? And it's hard to do this. It's hard to identify the heart of the issue. It's hard to identify the rock because it requires two things. Number one, listening. And number two, expressing your feelings in a relationship. And there's usually one person in the relationship that is not very good at that. And it's usually the person who forgets to put the toilet seat down. I'm horrible at it. My wife's over there shaking her head. You know, it's not my, well, my specialty, all right? But it is hers, so we find some common ground there. But it takes listening, it takes understanding. And identifying the heart of the issue, expressing your feelings. Another lesson, try to start with a positive. When you have conflict in relationships, start with a positive word. Michael, she could have handled it a whole lot differently. When David came home after this great day of victory, she could have had, you know, balloons and crepe paper and said, wow, what a day, fantastic day of yours. Congratulations on the victory. By the way, can I talk to you about your boxer shorts, right? Some of you know how tough it is to live 
in a relationship and be in a, be in a relationship with someone who's critical all the time. Maybe you have a stepmom. The first thing she always talks to you about is the way you're not raising your kids right. Maybe you have a husband that makes you feel insecure about your looks all the time. Maybe you have a wife who hounds you about everything you still need to do all the time. Or perhaps you have a father who you've never been able to be good enough for. When you enter into conversations with them about that, whatever it is, in whatever relationship, try to start with a positive. Enter into it encouraging. Third, don't get personal in a conflict. Don't get personal. Instead of resolving the issue, we sometimes are quick to go on the attack to try to win the argument. Name, our, our voices raised, name calling starts, and on it goes. There was a large survey done of young children. They were asked, what is the one thing you wish was different about your mom? What is the one thing you wish was different about your mom? 98% of them gave the same answer. I wish my mom wouldn't yell at me so much. 98% said, I I wish my mom wouldn't yell at me so much. That was 50 times greater than all the other answers combined. And yet that's how we try to deal immediately with conflict. But it makes matters worse. read about the North American common porcupine. Porcupine is a cute little guy, isn't he? Porcupines have over 30,000 quills. They can shoot those quills into enemies, into their enemy. And when they shoot that quill into an enemy, sometimes it will embed in in their flesh and it will... The heat will rise and an infection will happen and it could result in the death of their victim, of the enemy. That's one way they handle their enemies. Another way they handle their enemies is they simply run. (laughs) They go the other way and they get out of there. The article said that porcupines are almost always by themselves. They're not a communal animal. They're usually only by themselves, and that's true. Whenever you read or hear about a porcupine dead on the road, there's usually only one. There's not six, all right? They're by themselves. No, no children want porcupines as pets. It's not a real popular guy. He isn't. And so his response then, when he gets into arguments, when he comes into conflict, he usually deals with it one of two ways. He either withdraws, runs away, or he physically attacks. And those are the two worst ways, the two most damaging things you can do in a relationship. Withdraw meaning go hide in a room and give somebody the silent treatment, or attack, attack. Relationships are tough. Someone said every person starts off thinking his or her story will be written a certain way, but it never goes quite how they planned. If the walls of your house could speak, 
what story would they tell? Would they tell a story of conflict? You were determined that it wasn't going to turn out that way in your life. In fact, as a child, you used to lay awake at night in your bedroom with your pillow over your head as your mom and dad screamed at each other, maybe even threw at things. And you thought to yourself, it'll never happen to me. <laughs> I'll never yell. And yet you yell. And you said, I'll never hit. And yet you hit. And you said, there'll never be any cussing in my family. And yet you cuss. Or maybe you said, I'll never walk out. <laughs> like my mom did, I'll never walk out. And yet you're thinking about it right now. The good news for you is, your story is still being written. Your story is still being written. If the walls of your house could speak, what story would they tell? Would they tell a story of broken promises? For better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and health, you stood up on your wedding day and you said those and you met them with all the conviction you could have. Then the rock dropped. Something unexpected happened. The rock got heavier and heavier. Your husband can't, couldn't get a job. Wife struggled with depression, moodiness. Child has special needs. It's an unexpected connection to an attractive coworker on a business trip. Husband isn't as attentive. Rock drops, rock drops, rock drops. The good news for you is your story is still being written. You see, if you let him, God specializes in rewriting stories. That's what he does. God can take your story and he can take and turn tragedy into triumph. That's what he does. Instead of the walls of your house telling a story of anger, he wants them to tell a story of grace. Instead of the walls of your house telling a story of broken promises, he wants them to tell a story of renewed commitment. Instead of the walls of your house telling a story of disappointment, he wants them to tell a story of hope. But you have to let him. And no, it's not easy. And there's one thing that it all relies on. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ and God's spirit flowing through you. If you don't get that one relationship right, then no other relationship in your life is ever going to be right. I love the old illustration. It says, if you're buttoning up your shirt, if you get the top button right, the rest is easy. But you mess up that top button, man, it's all messed up. How's your top button? How's your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's where it starts. And maybe you're here in the room this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We desire that for you more than anything else.
this morning, every Sunday, the worship team shows up here early in. They rehearse and go through some details. And then they go back in the back room and they pray together and share together. And whenever I speak, I go back in the back room with them and I share in that, in that prep time and I pray with them. And this morning something happened back there that actually moved me in my heart and my spirit more than all last weekend put together. We entered into a prayer time and Tim was sharing the prayer. And I have a message in which I ask the question, when is the last time you cried over someone outside of Jesus Christ? When is the last time you cried over someone who didn't know Jesus? And when I ask that question, everybody goes down in their seats. You can see it. Well, this morning in Tim's prayer, he prayed for every one of you who might be present in this room right now who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And he cried. He cried over you. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, Tim cried and Jesus cried. And he's crying right now. So we want to give you a chance to do that. Get that top button right. Father, we thank you. We praise you. God, we yield our lives to you. God, help us each to get that relationship right with your son. And God, if there's someone in this room who doesn't know him, allow him to come forward right now as we sing this chorus or talk to us in the hallways. But don't let him leave this building without making that decision to follow him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.